welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week and I guide you gently through another show. Got my co-host here, Frank Washcook. Executive editor of PR Week. How are you doing, Frank? Doing well. Thanks for having me on, Steve. Had a bit of snow in New York this week. Uh, For the first time this year. First time for 18 months? Yeah. It was nice. Yeah. It was nice. You need a bit of snow in winter, don't you? And then it was mostly gone as of last night. It was, especially in Manhattan, which is about three degrees warmer. Mm. And we're here with, we're in the studio. We've got a guest in the studio. Very excited. It's Gemma Hart, who's VP of Communications and Public Affairs at Danone. How are you doing, Gemma? Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Hi, Frank. Hi. Now, you are sort of based up in Westchester. Did you have much snow Bad weather this week? We had a lot of snow yesterday. It was the first snow day for my son. So he was right. extremely excited. Um, lots of sledding yesterday. There's still quite a bit of snow actually out of the city. Yeah. We're in the city in Brooklyn, so we kind of we're used to it disappearing. But we've seen snow in Height Ashbury, Frank. People sledding down the park in- and, and wild images out of California, yeah. Southern California, Absolutely. especially. So yeah. Oh, the snowpack in the West Coast is yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. Crazy times. So we're going to talk to Gemma, then we'll chat about Pfizer. It's put its uh, PR and other agencies up for review. Big, big review, that one. Norfolk Southern, its crisis response. How did it do and how is it doing? Weber Shamwick has made some uh, cuts in uh, some SVP and uh, below roles. Elon Watch, we always talk about Elon. He's had a busy week. He's having a busy week. We'll check how he's getting on. And some PR Week news, Global Awards and Healthcare Awards shortlists announced. But Gemma, we'll start talking to you. You um, moved over from AB InBev to Danone in 2019. Right, four years ago. Nothing much happened in the in the interim time, did it? Nothing at all. <laughs> so how was that? You, you were just getting your feet under the table, I guess, and then this thing called COVID came, came right. around. Right. Yes. I mean, I was grateful to have a full year to get to know the business, to be able to travel, to get to know colleagues. Um, and then, of course, everything stopped in March 2020. And I remember it very clearly because we were planning to go to Expo West as a business. We had everything set up. And we were literally waiting for a go, no go about getting on the plane. And then we didn't go. And of course, nobody went. And then there were no events for a really long time. Yeah, because um, we saw you at PR Decoded with your CEO in the October of right. 2019. And then we didn't have a Decoded in person for three years. And right. We had to cancel our PR Week Awards at 10 days notice. Right, yeah, it was, I remember. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that um, we're all still processing all of the things that have happened over the last few years. But certainly on the comms side, it was a catalyst for a lot of the strategies that we were putting in place. Um, because as for most of most comms teams, we were suddenly at the heart of um, all of our efforts to keep our people safe and informed and engaged. And it was a great opportunity to kind of set out the principles of how we wanted to communicate. So we wanted to be the ones to share all the information that we had, really drive transparency, build engagement, and make sure we were taking feedback from our colleagues and incorporating that into what we were doing and giving our senior leaders all of the information and tools that they needed to really lead and to maintain a level of proximity to their teams. And it was all new. So we were testing and learning um, and, you know, I think getting great feedback along the way. And we actually 
took the decision to put out a communication every single week. So we did over 150 newsletters. We just stopped, obviously, last year. Um, but every week we had our crisis team meeting, which I'm part. And then we would talk about, you know, what's happening. What is the safety of our teams? Um, we have 15 factories across North America. So we had people who were going into work yeah, every day. People forget about that. People forget about Vast, that. <laughs> the population right. had to go into work. Right? How, are we, how are we keeping them safe? Um, what are the extra measures we're taking? At one point, we actually bought and built our own mask machine. And we're like shipping masks out around the country. And we would take all of that information and distill it into a short memo and get our most senior people to align on it all within 24 hours, translate it and get it out the same week. And so it meant that we got a level of um, focus and attention that we've been able to largely keep because people, I think, can see the value that we bring as communicators in connecting the dots across the different parts of the business. And does the C-suite and the CEO does it now have a greater um, awareness of what comms brings to the table? That's what we've kind of been seeing, and especially with employee engagement, but with crisis and with uh, council around all sorts of issues. Have you definitely felt that? And has that continued post-COVID? Yes. I mean, I, I think that, um, as you said at the beginning, I was only a year in when COVID hit. And so we're still, you know, building my own credibility with the leadership team. And it just accelerated that process, because suddenly I was in the thick of it, in the crisis room with them every day. And my background really is in those sort of high intensity crisis moments. And so, you know, they got to see what I could bring. Um, and it meant that you, you know, you build really strong relationships of trust with leaders across the business. And that's what you really need to be effective as an advisor and to also have the right level of insight into the business itself so that the advice that you're giving is connected to the business objectives. And so that has certainly continued. Um, and we, we gained a new CEO, um, let's see, three years ago now, right? So we were partway through COVID when we had a, a CEO transition. And I feel very fortunate because um, our CEO, Shane Grant, is somebody who intuitively believes in the power of communication and how it helps to drive business strategy. And so he commits a lot of time to it. And sometimes I think he gets a little sick of me because he has weeks around earnings or when we have big media moments where he could spend a quarter of his week either preparing or actually giving a speech or engaging with external stakeholders. Um, and so it's it's a lot of time, but you know I think that um, he shows with his example how valuable it is what we do. Now, of course, for a long time, Danone was the largest B Corps in the world. It's now the second largest. Tell us what that means. I mean, that's it, it's not an easy honor or award. It's not an award, but I don't know how you describe it. Right. It's not an easy thing to get, is it? And you have to keep up to it to keep that. Um, attribution. So right. tell us about that and tell us what being a B Corps is all about. And it's obviously around purpose and what have you, but I think mm. our listeners would really appreciate hearing from the, you know, the second largest B Corps in the world. Right. So if I just step back, Danone is, is really an unusual food and beverage company for the scale that we're at, because we have purpose at the core of our being. And um, it's really in our heritage as a company. And so 50 years ago, our then CEO did what was a groundbreaking speech that where he said, our responsibility does not stop at the factory gate. And that is 
um, something that, that is then intrinsic to who we are as a company in terms of our culture and values and what is now talked about very widely as stakeholder capitalism is something that we've been practicing for a very long time. So then that translates into our governance structure. Um, and so at the global level, we are something that's called an entreprise à mission, which is a French version of a public benefit corporation. We are a public benefit corporation um, and we are also a B Corp. And we became a B Corp um, in 2018. And at the time, um, I think doubled the size of the B Corp world globally overnight because a lot of B Corps were much smaller. Um, so the B Corp um, accreditation, I think, is something that we see as it's a it's very important, right? It's a third party accreditation that is sort of a stamp of approval around us using our business as a force for good. So what I would say is the practices that underpin it are things that we have been doing for a long time. So it was a very natural step for us to, to become a B Corp. And when we decided to apply to be a B Corp, um, Danon, right, so the yogurt part of our business, had merged with White Wave, which broadly is the plant-based side of our business. And we had smaller parts of the business that were already B Corp accredited. And so it was something that actually really came from our own employees, where it was a shared focus within the new culture of the combined business. Um, and so we actually didn't expect to get the accreditation the first time. You go through a very rigorous process where B-Lab, so the external body, is looking at your business practices. They're looking at um, your supply chain, how you engage with your partners, your policies and approaches for your employees, you know, ingredient sourcing, all of the different elements of your business and whether or not you are a good corporate citizen. And they have measurements for each. And actually what I think was interesting for us and for them during that process was that they had never worked with a business of our scale. So they were actually having to adapt some of the processes so they made sense for a business so of our scale. they were learning scale. as well. They were learning as yeah. well, which I think has helped them as they've moved and um, more multinational companies have engaged on the B Corp journey. Um, we globally now have the target to become um, B Corp accredited around the world for Denon by 2025. And we're already about three quarters of the way there. So, so the way it works is that each legal entity around the world have, has to be accredited individually. And then it kind of ladders up to the global yeah, entity. Yeah, I remember Havas started in London and then New York got accreditation. Yeah. So that's why you can have a business like Unilever, right, which is also... Um, a great proponent of stakeholder capitalism, but they're not a B Corp, but Ben and Jerry's is, uh, yeah, for example. Yeah, exactly. So you have to recertify every three years. You have to improve every three years. So it's a constant dialogue with B Lab to understand where the standards are going and to make sure that we not only keep up, but get ahead of them. So as a communicator, you know, you've been at AB InBev, you've been on the agency side. What's the difference communicating at a B Corp? And what, how do you have to communicate differently at a B Corp? Or, is it, or are the principles pretty much the same? I think that the purpose-led nature of our business, the, the fact that we have this thing called the dual project, which is the balance of performance and purpose, gives us something a little unique and differentiated in how we tell our stories. And so, and also how we engage as a business, frankly, because it gives us a, a level of um, credibility and authenticity in some of the things that we do that then we can storytell around. Um, so for example, 
um, the White House back in September last year had um, a conference on nutrition and access to nutrition and healthy food. It was their first conference in 50 years. And because of the nature of our company and also our portfolio, so 70% of our portfolio is nutrition forward, we were invited to participate. And what that meant was not just being involved on a panel, but also to bring forward a commitment. And so we committed um, over the next seven years, so between now and 2030, that we are investing $22 million across the business um, to help drive um, better nutrition among American consumers. And when you look at how we can scale that for a business like ours, it's $22 million, potentially reaching 300 million consumers over the seven years. And um, that, that takes different forms, right? It's the research that we can do to help um, drive sustainable food systems. It's the work we can do with healthcare providers to give them more information on healthy eating and probiotics. Um, but then that, of course, that gives us a moment to talk about it at a high level when we make the announcement. And it also gives us a way to take the different pieces of that commitment and storytell around that too, which is what we're doing. Well, a lot of the debates around purposeful business revolve around it's a kind of an either or, whereas actually the best form of purposeful business is profitable business. And, and proponents of it say, actually, Unilever says this, our most purposeful brands are our most profitable. How do you square that circle, if you like? Right. Because without getting tarred with the sort of woke capitalism, because there's a very febrile debate around right. this sort of thing, isn't there? How do you engage in that sort of uh, social construct, if you like, that's around the whole concept of purpose? Yes. I think the point you made is exactly the right one. It's not either or, it's the and. And the more we can do to embed our purpose um, into our business strategy, the more successful we can be. And some of that is um, because of the nature of the business we are and our mission as a business and what we sell. So our mission is to bring health through food to as many people as possible. And as I said, we have a nutrition forward portfolio. So how do we live that mission and also deliver to consumers what they're looking for? And actually all the data shows that consumers are moving towards a healthier diet and lifestyle. They are also moving to what we call more of a flexitarian eating pattern, right? So dairy plus non-dairy, people are looking for more low sugar options. And so when you can find that sweet spot of, of um, meeting our mission and also meeting what consumers are looking for, that's obviously an area where it's the right thing for the business, but it's also the right thing for society and often for the planet. And if I give you an example, we have, we have a great yogurt brand, yogurt brand, um, <laughs> called Too Good. Um, so if you see it in the supermarket, 2G, um, the, the two refers to the amount of sugar in the yogurt. So Greek yogurt is, um, often a high sugar product. And this is a proprietary technology where it's slow strained and there's, there's only two grams of sugar in it. Um, so number one, it delivers on our mission in terms of, um, bringing health through food. But then as a business, we're also focused on how can we use our business as a force for good. And that manifests for a brand like Too Good, where they're focused on a topic like food waste. So um, you sort of go from the macro to the micro. 
how do we work with our farmers to reduce waste? And, that, and in that particular instance, in that yogurt, um, they're using rescued fruit in their products. So if you think about climate change, a lot of um, where you get significant climate change impact is food waste, mm. right? And some of that is when you look at supermarkets, people don't like things that aren't uniform in shape. So how, do we, how can we work with our partners um, to use some of that rescued fruit, what we're not allowed to call ugly fruit, um, so that it's a great tasting product, but it's also something that is good for the environment. And to sort of, to, to, to finish off the circle, that's a brand that we launched three or four years ago. I think it's almost a $200 million brand now. It's extremely successful and grew very quickly because it tastes great, but it's also delivering on what consumers are looking for, where they can help fight climate change. Yeah, it's a great example. And uh, we could talk for hours about this stuff. It's really important. And um, we're always happy to uh, profile great work going on and also work out whether it's Danone and yogurt or Danone and yogurt or... Well, Steve is totally throwing me off because normally we say yogurt in England, but here I say yogurt. Yeah, no, I'm, 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 I haven't learned yet. Um, anyway, we'll get Gemma's input on some of these stories as well. Thanks for that. It was great. Fascinating to find out more about it. Frank, so Pfizer has put its um, PR and other agency relationships up for review and that... that feels like quite a long time since they've done that, doesn't it? And that's obviously a massive account. I think it'll probably be the most closely watched uh, review of the, the first part of the year, maybe the whole year. Uh, it's very wide ranging. Their new CMO uh, is directing a review as part of what he's calling the ongoing transformation to become the best in class marketers of science, which sort of goes back to that campaign they did a couple of years ago about, you know, really focusing their branding on science during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. So they've worked with a range of PR firms in the past couple of years, Weber Shanwick, Ogilvy, Real Chemistry, Edelman, Porter Novelli. Um, and uh, it will be interesting to see who they retain or who they come out with uh, as they start to wrap this up. An interesting thing about it is that they are doing this as at least one study shows that the corporate reputation of pharmaceutical companies has dropped again. Uh, after peaking a bit during the pandemic and, and right when the vaccines came out, uh, the overall reputation of pharmaceutical companies is down again. So maybe connected, maybe not, but uh, it will be a very closely watched review. Yeah, Gemma, you've worked on the agency side at Brunswick and then you obviously at AB and now at Denon. You've got to strike a balance between having great relationships with your agency partners and and they take time to build, you know, the, whereas there's some brands that seem to review every couple of years and that just seems counterproductive. How do you approach that as a PR professional in terms of your agency support? Yeah, I mean, we are um, a relatively small but mighty in-house team and I think that that's typical actually, even for many companies our size. And so we cannot be successful without our agency partners. And I believe very strongly in treating them as um, sort of long-term members of the team. So uh, when you get to the review, it needs to be thoughtful. And it sounds like it's been several years for Pfizer. You know, it, it can be a good thing. As with, you know, relationships generally, it's sort of an opportunity to like take a fresh approach. Even if they stick with the same team, yeah, it can be yeah. that they bring in new people, new thoughts, new ideas. And I do think that the work that they did during COVID was very meaningful. I thought that Sally Sussman and her team 
really did some very careful storytelling around COVID. You know, they weren't profiting from the situation by, you know, sort of screaming it from the rooftops, but they were very thoughtful in how they shared the work that they were doing. And I, I think that there's some momentum there that they could be looking to build on. Yeah, we've got Sally on the show in a few weeks, so plenty to talk to Sally about, let's just put it that way, and uh, looking forward to that conversation. But uh, yeah, we will watch that uh, review closely. Another thing that uh, everybody has to be prepped for these days is crisis. We've got a conference in DC on April the 12th, all about it. But um, one of the big crises recently, Frank, is the Norfolk Southern rail spill. Uh, Talk us through that, and first of all, what happened, and then how people think the crisis response was handled. To start, the derailment uh, happened in uh, February 3rd, and really a story that I think it took the the national media a little bit of a while to come around to that was sort of a local story that caught fire on the internet and really, uh, you know, a lot of these really incredible images of just, you know, large smoke clouds coming from the crash site. And, you know, people obviously concerned about the um, the health implications of, of what was in the air and what was in the water and, and where their family is going to be safe. I think it's fair to say that Norfolk Southern was, was also slow to respond, um, but that they have taken a more proactive approach uh, over the past week or two uh, with their CEO visiting the site, actually interacting with local officials, with local people, uh, whereas- Drinking the water. Yes. Yeah. yeah, Drinking the water. I, I, you know, a lot of people think that's a bit stunty, but, um, you know, at the beginning they were saying, well, we can't have any officials there because we're concerned about their public safety and things like that. But I do think they've come around to it. It's also a bit of a political thorn in the side for the Biden administration because there are concerns that they didn't do enough, uh, both in terms of regulation and in the immediate response. Uh, so it's a crisis on on different levels for different organizations. It's also a case study in how quickly disinformation or misinformation uh, can spread on TikTok, especially, but also on other types of social media with, uh, you know, a lot of videos with with self-appointed health experts about what this might mean or might not mean. And um, yeah, so it's it's really, there's a lot to, there's a lot for both the company, for the government, for all these different organizations to wrap their arms around with this. Yeah. And former President Trump was quick to arrive on the scene, wasn't he? And, and at McDonald's. Yeah. Yeah. And somebody did sort of point out that the regulations that were eased could have been causation behind the crash, but we don't want to get into that. And then, obviously, President Biden was out in Ukraine at that time. So, yeah, when you have a crisis, you've got to be prepped for a crisis, obviously, Gemma, but there are so many different factors nowadays, aren't there? Um, How do you uh, navigate that? Because you were involved in a crisis, not with your product, but the baby formula crisis, where actually you were able to bring in products from Europe. Talk us through how you handled that one. Obviously, that didn't... directly affects you, but it affected your product category. Right. I mean, that was a major crisis that continued all through last year. I actually had just come back from having my own baby. And so I knew firsthand that there were empty shelves when it came to formula. And I was fortunate in that my daughter could, could eat like a sort of standard baby formula, but there are some babies that can't. And there were also those amino acid based formulas and when we have a leadership position for Denon, where that was also really hard for people to get hold of. Um, so, I mean, gosh, I think this could be one of the moments of my career that I'm going to be most proud of when I look back, because we um, have a very small 
baby formula business in North America, where we have Happy Family Organics. It's about sort of 1% of the overall baby formula market. And then we have this specialized nutrition business. But relatively speaking, very small. But globally, we are the number two baby formula manufacturer. And um, we could see what was happening. And we were having conversations with the FDA and with the White House. And as you said, Steve, ultimately what we did was ramp up production of both our standard baby formula. So um, we have a high quality formula called Aptamil, which is the number one formula in Europe. Where we were ramping up production in Europe and then our specialized formula where we were also ramping up production. And we were flying in additional units for babies and families in the U.S. and Canada to address this need. And ultimately, we brought in 6 million units of baby formula. And it was just a massive effort globally for Danone because baby formula is, for obvious reasons, very heavily regulated. So you can't ramp up production easily. And there's lots of checks and balances in place to make sure that it's safe. And you have to get FDA right, approval, consume. yeah. Yes. So we had factories that were, that were already FDA approved and somewhere we had to get some temporary approval to be able to bring the formula in. And we were bringing formula from all over the world, including New Zealand. So a big, big cross-functional effort trying to get um, even just the supply chain in place to do it was complicated. And of course, you have to remember that it, this was in a post-COVID era where the supply chain itself was yeah. still very backed up. So even finding ships and planes to bring the product in was very challenging. And and the Biden administration helped because they had Fly Formula, op- Operation Fly Formula. And so some of our formula came in through planes that they helped to organize. Yeah, good example, good case study that and um, something every communicator has to be aware of and well prepared for. So although you can't be prepared for a crisis by net, by sort of definition, but you need to have certain building blocks in place. Frank, um, we've, you know, we've seen two really good years on the agency front and we're doing our agency business report, putting together the review of last year. It's a bit more difficult economically now, and we have seen some cuts, and Weber Shamwick has made some cuts at uh, the sort of fairly fairly senior level of their um, executive divisions, if you like. Yeah, um, and that's happening this week. It's uh, fewer than two dozen employees. They're generally at the EVP, SVP, and VP levels at Weber Shanwick. Um, so um, they're they're classifying it as a small reduction to reshape their teams for the needs of their business today and the opportunities in front of them. Uh, they have about 4,800 employees globally and almost 3,000 in the U.S. And um, as more information comes out about this, it, it looks like most of uh, the people affected are from the Chicago office. Yeah, not all of them, but uh, they are some of them as people who've been there, you know, for a couple of decades. So, um, yep. you know, I hope they uh, manage to land somewhere. And it's never nice to see people lose jobs. It is less than one percent of their overall staff. So, you know, these things happen. But uh, yeah, are you seeing uh, in the general sort of economics? I mean, a lot of clients are saying, a lot of agencies are saying, well, we're getting more um, project-based work rather than retainers, you know, et cetera, et cetera. How are you seeing the, the economic um, environment? How is that impacting your relationships with your suppliers? Right. So I think that... Of which we should say Weber is one. Right? right, yes. I mean, I think everybody, not just in PR, is concerned about potential recession. And even though that concern seems to be moving to later in the year... 
it's been sort of a specter over all of our planning for 2023 for quite a while. And so I, I think businesses are tightening their belts in preparation and maybe that's what this change is sort of getting ahead of, you know, just, um, some cost consciousness from, from clients. It's, I think it's, it's a really interesting time because I think businesses, including ours, continue to perform very well. Um, but you know, as, as people see some of the economic indicators change, they need to make sure that they're prepared. Yeah. And then just on Weber, they are one of our partners. Um, they are excellent as you guys know. So I hope those guys find a soft yeah, landing. For sure. Um, and I'm sure there's other, you know, I'm sure other agencies are taking similar measures too. So, uh, um, let's, uh, look, it, we always, um, monitor what Elon's up to on this show, don't we, Frank? But he's having a particularly busy week on both parts. Well, he's got several strings to his bow, but on the Tesla part and the Twitter part. Yeah, a lot happening this morning and that uh, Twitter crashed in a way this morning uh, with timelines were unavailable to a lot of users. Uh, when they logged on, it just said, welcome to Twitter, like it was your, your first time uh, when you came on. So that was fixed as of this morning. Um, but it is a part of a pattern of more frequent crashes and other sorts of technical issues uh, with the platform. Probably not a coincidence as they've laid off a large percentage of their staff uh, in the past few months. It's also investor day uh, on Wednesday at Tesla. And part of the big news from that is that they are doing a revamp of their Model Y. And uh, that's going to be both, um, you know, interior, ex uh, exterior. They're calling it Project Juniper. Uh, and they're going to start production on that in 2024. I think a lot of people are also watching today to see if the company announces uh, more inexpensive electric vehicles, uh, how they are going to scale this up to make electric vehicles more widely available, both internationally and across different economic points. And, and you know, there's always this sense with him of, of anything can happen. So uh, looking to see what else he's going to say today. Yeah. And the perception that maybe he's been neglecting Tesla, you know, with all this Twitter stuff going on and whether that's true or not, I don't know. But Gemma, from a brand point of view, obviously Twitter was a fantastic vehicle to reach people and engage. Were you um, using it? Were you advertising on it? And what's your policy towards it now? Is it a place where you want Danon to hang out or are you sort of adopting a watching brief? We're in a wait and see mode. Like I think most companies of our scale, we as an advertiser want stability and safety and to know that when we're advertising that it would not be next to something considered hate speech for example. So we have been um, adopting a watch and see mode really since the takeover. The only thing that I would say is that um, Elon is somebody that I would not bet against. Like obviously there's a lot of um, turmoil at the moment. He's making a lot of changes, but we, we probably won't see many people in our lifetimes who have been as revolutionary and successful as he has. And so it's like, what exactly is he, he working on? with Twitter, he, he will have gone into that investment with a thesis of what he thinks he could do differently and better. So what exactly is that? And I don't think that's clear yet. Yeah, I think that's a good um, good perspective because, you know, Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook has, has already copied one of their ideas, hasn't he? So um, some of the ideas were uh, were clearly widely, widely popular. I think that's the, from a brand point of view, I think I wrote a blog a couple of months ago saying, you know, time to take a pause 
And um, I think that's still the case. I agree with you. And um, it may well come back as a really powerful channel. It's, it's clearly a lot of noise on there, too much noise, but your, your stability and safety is absolutely right. Brands want, <laughs> that's where brands want to be and they don't, they can't afford to be associated with uh, potential dangers. So yeah, it sounds like the prudent way to act for the time being. All right, Frank, let's finish up with just um, a quick review of the global awards. The shortlist was announced this morning, as was the shortlist for the PR Week US Healthcare Awards. So anything jump out particularly? <laughs> yes, it's a busy, it's a busy, busy, busy awards season. It is. And you'll be at the uh, PR Week Global Awards in London, won't you? On May the 9th. How, how is the vibe different than the US awards? It's interesting. There's not as many people there, but it's, you know, it's, uh, funnily enough, a much more global audience. <laughs> so you do get people traveling from Asia, um, from Latin America, from the Middle East, from Europe as well as plenty from the US and the UK. So it is a very different vibe, and it's very different from the PR Week UK Awards, which are very different from the PR Week US Awards. Um, people turn out, Gemma, you probably can weigh in on this. People do party a bit harder in the UK, I think. <laughs> I think that's yes. fair to say, isn't it? They're happy to go and have just have fun, whereas I sense yeah. at the US Awards, it's like, yeah, I need to network. I, yeah, who's network. here? I need to network. There's some furious networking going yes. on there. I went to the British American Business Holiday Lunch um, in December, and it was, you know, the first one I've been to for many years. And Honestly, the noise of people just having a great time was was beyond. I don't think I've been to a work event like that for quite a long time. Is that Duncan Edwards? Yes. Is in charge there. Yes. Yeah, he's uh, no Duncan from the media world. Um, yeah, so I think <laughs> there are some stories about the that I could, they're probably not for, for the podcast, but if anyone uh, sees me at the US Awards, the Oscars of PR in a couple of weeks on the 16th of March, happy to share, but uh, I'll be there. Yeah, and the healthcare awards are different again because you've obviously got the, all the healthcare specialists and practitioners, and I'm sure Crisis, they're not awards, but it's a conference in uh, DC, will be the, a very different crowd as well. Yeah, well, um, just looking at the global awards list, I mean, it's it's interesting too, in that it's a totally different perspective because you you look at the list and you go, gosh, I'm not familiar with a lot of these campaigns. We haven't covered a lot of them. Um, I'm sure you could see some broad themes in terms of you know use of influencers and bigger bigger trends, but um, you know it, it's definitely a different mix. You can tell uh, from the U.S. awards in terms of the healthcare awards. I think the thing that jumped out at me was that you, you're really starting to see the transition away from COVID-19 focused campaigns everywhere up and down the list like it was last year with the healthcare awards where even if they were not specifically like vaccination campaigns, there were a lot of wellness campaigns and a lot of mental health campaigns that had COVID-19 themes. And now I think you're, you're starting to see more of a mix of there are definitely still some some COVID related campaigns up for awards here, but a lot more are what you might have seen a couple of years ago. And I'm also very interested to see who wins and how they do invest in social media and influencers. Cause I think this is such an important area with all of the, um, you know, not so respectable healthcare information and content and things like that on social media. So, uh, interested to see how that works out as well. Yeah. Certainly a good summation that Frank and, um, yeah, you're right on the global stuff. It's like when you go to Cannes, you see work from all over the world and you get inspired because you do see stuff that is different. It's very creative. 
slightly unusual different markets they do things in different ways so that's that's one of the beauties of it so yeah global awards shortlist is out the events in london on 9th of may healthcare awards shortlist is out that's in new york city on the 24th of may oscars of pr couple of weeks 16th of march in new york city cipriani wall street crisis comms conference is in dc on the 12th of april and uh we'll save the brand entertainment awards for next week's show but so uh, you have got a week or two to get your best films and other activations brand entertainment activations into that that will be celebrated in june and agencies make sure you've got your agency business report submissions working the uh, deadline for that is fast approaching so we make sure you get in and get on the rankings table and um, get to talk to us about how your year was Gemma's thanks so much for joining us been a real pleasure to have you in the studio actually thank you thanks for having me yeah Bill Fitzpatrick our excellent producer has built an incredible studio here so any guests who want to come and join us here in the future do do take us up on that and uh, continued good luck with the B Corps stuff and, um, and keep up the great work Frank always a pleasure but that's all we got time for we'll see you next time on the PR Week PR Week